Hello, and welcome to Of Poetry Podcast, episode four with the poet Carla Sofia Ferreira. Carla Sofia Ferreira is a Portuguese-American poet from Newark, New Jersey, who teaches high school English in Newark today. She's received fellowships from the Sundress Academy for the Arts and Dreamyard Radical Poetry Consortium. Her microchap, Ironbound Fadus, was published in 2019 by Ghost City Press, and in 2020, she self-published a poetry prompt chapbook for high school students and their teachers, Ida Persimmon. Carla believes in community gardens, semicolons, and that ice must be permanently abolished. Welcome to a poetry podcast. <laughs> Thanks so much for being here, Carla. Thank you so much for having me. This is such a joy. Um, I was wondering if we could start off by talking a bit about the title and concept of your chapbook from Ghost City Press. Absolutely. So it went through a few different possible titles um, because I, I really started working on a lot of these poems uh, when I was still in college, um, the earliest, or rather, I guess I should say the oldest poem, uh, Pacific Street, I actually wrote when I was 17. Um, so it went through a lot of different um, reiterations before it became this. Um, so at first it was called In Transit. Uh, then I took a line from the poem In Transit uh, called uh, Memory Bites the New Tongue. I kept kind of playing around with different titles for it. And then I finally settled on Ironbound Fadluj because I was really trying to tell um, the story and also kind of write a series of love poems to the community where I grew up in Newark, um, the Ironbound, uh, which is a traditionally immigrant community, continues to be so to this day. And Fadluj uh, comes from a, a form of Portuguese music. I actually, in my... Um, in the beginning of the book, I have this little section called Cardinal Directions, which are not exactly translations, but a little bit of etymology behind some of the common words that I use in the chap. Um, and so I have one for sodad, and then I have another for fadu, uh, which comes from the Latin root meaning will of the gods, um, <laughs> which sounds incredibly dramatic. And it makes sense because the music really is, and it's music that really is about longing and trying to bring together fragments of what's been lost. Um, so if you listen to traditional Portuguese fadu, uh, it often almost sounds as if the singer is crying. Um, sometimes they actually are. They're, they're talking about loss and things that cannot return, which is, of course, again, that's the root of sodad, um, that word that is that I, I love because it's it's not fully translatable into English or into other languages. It means, um, as I've described it in the in the cardinal directions at the beginning of the chap, it's a longing for someone or some time that perhaps never fully existed and, and that will not return. And what I also love about the word too is that you use it colloquially in Portuguese all the time. So instead of saying, I miss you, you would say, I have sodad of you. Thank you, sodad stuaj. Um, so I love your question, by the way, because I feel like um, this title was really like very much like the last part of the book. It had so many different titles. And then finally, when I was um, formatting this as a microchap for Ghost City, um, I just decided, you know, I've been writing these love poems for the Ironbound for so long. It it belongs in my title. Um, so thank you for asking that. Oh, absolutely. I think place is so important in your work and it's a gorgeous title. And it, ha I mean, it's, it's just so evocative. I mean, it would be evocative if you only had one of those words. I mean, mm. so together, I think you know, it brings a lot of, you know, for me in my background, I think of hybridity right away. Um, but it also, as you, as you so rightly um, turn the conversation towards, you know, in, in terms of immigrant communities and thinking about blending cultures and, mm. um, and you see that even in the form of your chat book, which is beautiful like it is so beautifully designed um, I'm so impressed it's just 
gorgeous. I mean, I feel like some people really miss out on um, digital chaps because we do sometimes get kind of uh, fetishistic about printed Hmm. works. And it's, I mean, from the gorgeous, like pink and purple lineated cover art, which I would love to hear more about. Oh yes. Um, it's gorgeous <laughs> to to the um to the dedication, which is, you know, lineated in this beautiful way and multiple lines in it moves about the field of the page almost like a poem. And so it, it looks like the very first introduction poem to the table of contents with the compass rose and your cardinal directions. Like it's just be, it's so thoughtful. It's so beautiful. It's like a work of art before you've even gotten to the first poem, which I just loved. Um, so I just think ghost city is really, really doing some oh, excellent work. <laughs> um, thank you so much, Han. That was the just most gorgeous, most generous reading of the chap. I am so grateful for, for you reading it in that way. Um, the, the cover art, um, huge, just endless shout out and garlands of gratitude uh, to Mark Cugini. Uh, they were the designer of my cover. Um, I was so lost <laughs> when I was trying to create a cover for this chap. I had a very clear vision in my head for what I wanted, um, but I am not uh, an artist in that way. I'm not a, a, an excellent graphic designer. Um, and so I had kind of posted on Twitter around this time when I found out that the chap was first accepted, um, if anyone knew how to design a cover. And Mark had reached out to me and I showed them my cover at the time, which was terrible. And you have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) I was trying so hard to do so many things and I knew I wanted the tile, the Portuguese azulejo, which is the, the kind of blue and white and sometimes yellow tiles, um, which are kind of done in arabesque uh, style. And I, I wanted some kind of referencing to geography, like a map. Um, and I wanted it to be the map of Newark. I, I really wanted Newark to be, you know, right from the cover, the center of the work, um, because it's just so important. Uh, to me that people understand Newark as a poem, you know, to understand my city as poetry. Um, and, but my cover was so terrible. And Mark was um, just so kind, so generous, and looked at it and was like, well, I, I kind of see what you were going for there. <laughs> it was the <laughs> nicest thing anyone could have said. And they were like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play around with this a little bit, and then I'll get back to you. Um, and then they sent me this absolutely gorgeous cover, which took my ideas and then made it into something beautiful. Um, mm. So I really owe them that cover. Um, it was uh, so now every time I look at my chap, I, I, you know, I think of Mark and I think of their kindness. Um, you know, it was really it was really extraordinary to have that. Um, I couldn't have asked for a better cover um, that, you know, it speaks to Newark. You, you kind of see almost that Passaic River. Yeah. kind of uh, winding through there. And you, if you zoom in, you can see the the blue and white tiles, the azulejos mm. that I really wanted. Um, and yeah, I, gosh, I couldn't have asked for a better cover. Um, I love that story. Thank you for asking about it. <laughs> yes, yes. I mean, I think there's so many amazing elements of collaboration that come together when you make a book. And um, you know, it's not something you do on your own. It's, mm. it's something you do in community and, and then, you know, that can be different depending on the press you're with. And there are places that will just tell you what your cover yes. is. Um, <laughs> that terrifies me. Um, well, that's super frightening <laughs> to me. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So it's, it's really wonderful. Like uh, just all the different, I mean, it's just a beautiful, visually stunning cover um and so evocative again um and it's perfect like that's you know it's I think just the design is a delight itself and um I just love that you know Ghost City Press has created this this digital space um for for authors and for poets like you um yeah. they're really wonderful and I think I mean for me you kind of mentioned a little bit of like the whole um, I guess not so much stigma, but just kind of oftentimes the forgetting that these mm-hmm. digital chapbooks exist and mm-hmm. the 
um, the undervaluing of them, which is really unfortunate because, I mean, one of the things that I love about Ghost City and other presses like this that um, produce these electronic chapbooks is that they make it um, immediately accessible. Um, I think that's so important in terms of making poetry more accessible and more um, just able to get into people's homes without them having to, to necessarily break the bank to do so. Yeah. Um, and to just have it in that digital format where you could you could read it, you know, on the train, you could read it, yeah, you know, yeah. outside on, on your cell phone. It's true. It's I love that. Um, the port, you know, the portability. And mm. I think anytime you can books are in terms of technology, books are a little tricky. Like you need you often need two hands. Um, the fact that you can hold a phone with mm-hmm. one um or just touch a screen like that. It, it literally is physically more accessible, um, which is pretty incredible. Would you like to read a poem for us? Yes, I think <laughs> I'm going to start um, with the poem that you had mentioned to me on Twitter and which was a real joy to return to. We're actually in mid-August right now. So looking right at the very beginning of the poem, it feels so fitting. Um, So I'll read um, a poem that's about midway through the chap uh, called Eurydice and Orpheus in the City. Eurydice and Orpheus in the City. In the heat of mid-August, Eurydice went to rent a flat on the corner of Broad and Market, where the 34 Springfield bus makes its rounds. She was an old fashioned girl with no particular notion of love and stayed up late nights talking with her sister, the moon by long distance. Evenings, she would call collect and mornings she would take to her typewriter and to afternoons mixed with exhaust and city fume. Young Orpheus came around and asked her to take a stroll and she followed him into the underground. There's gotta be a way around, he told her gently holding Eurydice's hand the way only Orpheus could And then he would teach her to take bird chatter and street lamplight and traffic speech to make song and her singing filled his days. He liked to take cherry blossoms and glide them in her hair. His voice was soft leather when he sang and his harp was crafted with the finest strands of street echo and passerby threads. One night, Hades, who was never up to any good, stole away with Eurydice and brought her to the underworld and fed her salt and dates. Her tears cried forth to Passaic and it escaped into the earth where Orpheus swam alone into the river and found a way to the underworld, where Eurydice was knitting her story into knotted thread, humming an old jukebox song. Hades gave him one chance to take her back home, and he only had to not look back at Eurydice as she followed. He lost that contest. Orpheus went back to the flat on the corner of Broad and Market, while Eurydice continued to knit on the, ba- on the banks of Leth, unsatisfied with the Passaic, which was, after all, a river of persistent memory. For a while, Orpheus would play her radio in the empty room, but the wallpaper only soaked up static So he returned to the streets and took up a new music. Thank you. This is a beautiful poem and 
just an incredible rewriting of Eurydice and Orpheus. I love that they're in the city. Um, I love the overtones. I mean, the way you also evoke, you know, Persephone, right? Um, here mm. with the feeding of salt and dates, like <laughs> Hades is this this underworld host, right? Yes. <laughs> um, oh, and the Passaic, like, it's just so beautiful, Carla. Oh, thank you so much, Han. And for our readers or our listeners, I should add that um, it really does move across the page. Um, it has it has very long lines, mm-hmm. um, but it's not just left aligned. It drifts, you know, drifts to the right hand side. Um, and the line he lost that contest, which is a very you know short forward sentence comes on the left like it's just pinned to the Mm. left hand side which and I love that um that kind of minimalizing of like that's the whole that's the story people tell right and it's (laughs) it's just four words in in your version which I love Mm -hmm. um yeah it's just yeah oh I'm so sorry I didn't mean to cut you off you're gonna say something no please go right ahead Um, I was going to say, it's interesting for me whenever I read these out loud, because I feel, um, and this is definitely a huge area that I need to work on as a poet, um, I feel like so much of my focus is visual and and how things are looking on the page that I often, I I wonder and I worry um, how much of that gets lost (laughs) when I read it out loud. Um, I think too, I just, I, um, I'm so self-conscious about my own reading out loud of the poems. Um, for me, poetry has just always been a way to kind of exist on the page and to just be as loud or as soft as I want on the page. So it's, it's interesting, um, even rereading this poem, thinking about, wow, some of the lines, um, yeah, you really, you really have to look at the poem to see what they're doing. <laughs> um, so I hope, I hope they translate um, well in terms of uh, being read out loud. Um, but yeah, that line in particular, I was often thinking about, um, you know, when there's a moment of really great impact or drama or loss, um, sometimes you can't even really put it into words. And so making the line almost as minimal as possible, just those four words kind of Mm. isolated from the rest of the poem is a way of almost speaking to that. Like this is an unspeakable loss. They were so close to being reunited and there's not even, I mean, so much of the poem is these long flowing lines and that long, the longness or the longness, wow, the length, (laughs) English teacher over here, the longness, Um, the length of the lines really speaks to the, to the longing that they have for each Mm. other. But then this catastrophic loss, it was really important to me that it was isolated um, and minimal on the page so that it could speak to the unspeakability of it, the fact that it's beyond mm. words, what, what has just happened. Uh, you make me think of two things, which is A, I, I don't think I've ever really thought about the word long, meaning mm. such different things that is both measurement um, and longing, like it's also a verb. Um, mm. So I hadn't thought about that at all, which is just an incredible thing to think about with this poem. Um, and then two, you know, with the, with the, he lost that contest. I think it's so remarkable because there's so often, I don't know, I feel like understatement kind of gets the short end of the straw and like Mm. overstatement gets, you know, we pay more attention to overstatement half the time until, until it begins to lose its, its power because everything is overstatement. It's almost like the news, like, oh gosh, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Just overwhelming. And, um, we get a little numb to it. I think it's mm. pretty human to feel that way, but I don't know. There's something about it just as a reader. It just makes me perk up my ears. Like, I'm like, whoa, what happened there? Something like <laughs> totally different. So I really appreciate that surprise. Oh, I'm so glad. I'm, that was really, that was, that was the goal, especially after those, those longer lines, just to be like, Hey, listen, this yes. thing happened. It matters. Yes. Um, and you don't always, it doesn't always have to be in all caps or, you know, it can be in this whisper, but the whisper is important to listen to. Yes. Um, yes. It reminds me, have you read um, the Orpheus poem by Muriel Ruckheiser? You probably have. 
I have actually not. Um, oh. I feel <laughs> I feel very underread in Orpheus poems. I have to read more. Um, most of my understanding of the history is actually what I read in high school from um, Edith Hamilton's mythology. Um, <laughs> but uh, I haven't read that one. I, I will have to add it to my to read list. It's called Pieces of Orpheus. And I only, I haven't, it's not one of those that I'm like, oh, I've been a fan of this poem for a really long time. Mm-hmm. I actually just learned about it when I was reading The Life of Poetry. Um, mm-hmm. And I, th- I think of it in relation to your work, because one of the things, of course, you'd never know this from her poem, but well, maybe not. I don't know. Um, but she talks about how it developed and how she wrote it and a night cityscape was really important um, to, so it's the idea of the pieces of Orpheus and she talks about watching people at night kind of, you know, fade in and out of the light and seeing only parts of their bodies and how that image really shapes um, the Orpheus like torn apart by the maenads, right? And then flung out. Oh, that sounds incredible. Um, I'm, it's I'm really definitely cool. adding this to my to read, read list very soon. That sounds wonderful. I just think it's really wonderful to think about cities and myth and um, because there's Ooh, so yes. many, yeah, right. There's so many cities in Greek, Greek myth. I mean, and mm-hmm. it's such an important, I don't know. Sometimes we get these weird bifurcations in, in poetry and, yes. you know, there's, there's myth that happens in rural landscapes and there's myth that happens in mm-hmm. urban, but um, there's something the city for me is not a place I grew up. And so it is, it is kind of this magical and slightly scary place. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, It's almost, it's like the idea of a city is almost a little bit like mythic to me, um, even though now I live in a small city, but um, so that's part of why I just love Eurydice and Orpheus Mm -hmm. set, you know, that she, you know, Eurydice went to rent a flat on the corner of broad and market. Like I just love it. I just think it's, um, so imaginative and it just, it, you know, it wakes your imagination up because you have to Mm. shift context. And that's one of the great things about both myth. And then like, you think of performances and adaptations of like plays that are say set in, um, you know, whatever, 1950s America, Mm. or like, you know, when the, what happens when you change the scene and the setting and the props, um, something really incredible happens then I think. Absolutely. I'm so glad you mentioned this idea of like cities as mythic. I think for me growing up in Newark um, and, you know, I attended school there and I lived there um, until leaving for college when I was 18. Um, And I love my city, uh, loved and love. And so much of the mythology around Newark that I would see um, in media, on the news would be deeply negative. would be really um, derogatory. And I remember even, you know, when I finally left Newark for college, um, (laughs) being in a lot of classrooms where I would say, you know, that I'm from Newark and people who were Jersey um, in particular would just give me this kind of look. (laughs) Wow. Um, And, Yeah, I remember just feeling, you know, when I was writing these poems, I wrote this poem uh, when I was a senior in college, um, but it really takes so much of the landscape, um, the geography of where I lived and where I went to high school in particular. So Broaden Market is not that far from my high school, a very um, Broaden Market in Newark, um, if you look it up on Google Maps. is a real place. Um, uh, I don't think they have too many apartments there. Actually, it's a pretty big main street. (laughs) Um, It'd be hard to rent a flat there. But um, again, this is mythology. (laughs) Um, And I I would take the 34 Springfield bus back home. And I love again, even, you know, it's a real bus. It's a real Mm. bus line. Um, But the name, you know, is just so evocative Mm. and poetic that spring, you know, if you stop, it's very easy to gloss over, you know, Springfield, very common name, but if you stop and listen to it, like, wow, it's so, it's such a part of the poem. It's so poetic. So, um, and then there, of course, there's the Passaic um, throughout, which is, um, again, it's a, it's an incredibly polluted 
Um, I, I remember mentioning it once to um, another poet who had been to Newark for the Dodge Poetry Festival. Um, and the other poet who I won't name uh, referred to it as a sewer. Um. <laughs> and it was just, uh, you know, I think growing up in Newark, um, I, I learned, you know, very early on that uh, other people would not love my city the way that I did. And so, so many of these poems and this one in particular was just a way of saying, of resisting that, of saying, yeah. no, you know, Nork is a poem that this mythology, you know, I was kind of mythologizing it into mm-hmm. what I saw as its actual beauty. Um, so that it, for me was just very important that the myth was, was very, uh, you know, was situated within the reality of Nork itself. Yeah. Yeah. I um, wasn't, cause I'm reading, I'm reading Patterson this summer. Oh um, yes. By Williams or right. Jersey boy. <laughs> that's right. Um, so there are some very famous poets from New Jersey. And um, I think I was thinking a lot about place and how important, you know, mm. cityscapes. It's also as, as well, as well as like the natural, you know, you know, cities are on land, <laughs> like cities have green mm-hmm. spaces, green, sp- and they are surrounded by other lands. Um, and I think that's, it's so interesting. I mean, I, 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 for me, I don't think you can separate place from it's, it's kind of incredible to me when a poet isn't name dropping the names that are around them. And I, I don't mean name dropping in a negative oh, sense yeah. at all. Like to me, it's like names are so rich names, yes. um, carry histories. Like, I don't know where the name Passaic comes from, mm. but, but I know, <laughs> I know there's something to be known there. Right. Yes. Um, would do you, Actually, do you know the etymology of Passaic? I don't actually, and that is something I should learn. I, as you were saying this, though, about the idea of etymology and place and name, it was bringing me back to your questions about the title with the Ironbound, mm. um, which itself is just such an evocative name. And um, I think growing up there, I didn't even think about it as a kid. Um, but when I looked back, you know, when I was in college writing many of these poems, um, just thinking about, um, you know, the metaphor and the reality within that, like the iron uh, of the strength of the people who live there, um, the actual physical iron that bound the community, mm-hmm. <laughs> which mm-hmm. is, you know, that that is the etymology of the name. It comes from uh, the train tracks that kind of surround the city. Um, and for me, I've always, um, I've always taken it to be almost a part of my own identity in terms of the etymology, because my last name, Ferreira, comes mm-hmm. from the Latin for iron, uh, f- from ferrum. Um, and so for me, ironbound has always felt like almost a a prophecy in a way, not just an origin story, but also that I was bound to return, um, which is so much of what this collection goes over. And I wrote this when I was still living in Cal, or rather wrote this, many of the poems were written beforehand, but I published the book when I was still living in California at the time and trying to brainstorm how I was gonna come back home um, and how I could make it happen for good. Um, So in terms of thinking about names, being Ferreira and being from the Ironbound, it always felt like I was, um, yeah, it's it's in my blood. <laughs> uh, literally, too, if you look at the composition of blood. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I love that you bring up, you know, that you've moved between the two coasts like this um, and that you've lived in California and you've taught in California and like, you know, you know, the, you know, that aspect of California, you've mm. lived there. Um, because it's for me at least, it has been hugely important in my own writing um, that you you really do have to step outside mm. of home to be able to yes. see it more clearly. And sometimes it feels like cheating. You're like, oh no, I left. Am I not really mm. from there? But actually, you gain such incredible insight from being able to look back and and kind of inside from the outside at your home, at your culture, 
at how your family speaks at, you know, the physical places. It's just, it's so, I think it's so incredible. Um, And, you know, it's, it's just a good perspective to have Mm. that like leaving a place can help you see that place so much better. And then returning is wonderful, but it'll be a different Mm. experience, right? Yes. You're, you're never returning a hundred percent the way that you left and you're Mm. never returning a hundred percent to what the place was to you before, but um, that doesn't feel like lost to me so much. It just feels like a new form of being. It just feels like growth, you know? Um, I, I hundred percent, I just, as while you were saying, you can't see me right now, but as, as you were saying everything, I was just nodding vigorously. Yes. <laughs> I, I a hundred percent agree. And I think, I think for me too, I, I, um, I was a bit of a weird child. Uh, <laughs> I knew very early Aren't on. All poets. I mean, all poets. I feel like this is not an unusual thing to say, right? As a poet, it's like, I was a bit of a weirdo. Um, mm-hmm. I, I knew super early on that I wanted to be a teacher, um, which my mom, who had been a teacher for over 25 years in, in Newark public schools, was horrified. <laughs> She was like, Carla, you could do so many things. Why are you choosing this? (laughs) Um, But I I knew very early on I wanted to teach and I knew that I wanted to come back to my high school um, with all of my feminist nuns. Um, And I wanted to teach there in Newark in the city that I wanted to return. And I I left my high school uh, with that very much being the plan. And I feel like... um, everyone in my family and all of my older family friends, they were just kind of waiting for me to grow out of it. Mm. Um, And I think (laughs) um, I kept moving myself around to all of these different places. Like I lived in France and England and in California. And I think a lot of that was not just, you know, for the experiences themselves, which Mm were mixed, but in many situations were wonderful. I, I did love a few of the places that I lived, um, but I think was also to prove to people, um, yeah, I've, I've been elsewhere and now I'm going home and this is the choice yes. that I'm making. Um, yes. And I, I feel like in the meantime though, um, these poems were a way to keep coming home when I couldn't. Um, they were a way to keep me connected and close. Um, they bridged the time zones for me. They made it feel like with so many of them looking at them now, it's like, oh, this is, this is my iron bound. This is, this is where and, and I'm home. And at least in these poems, I can be home. And, and that's what they really were for me, um, you know, for, for such a long time. I love that kind of like love letters. Yes. Oh, yes, 100%. I, I often tell folks that I think uh, that Nork and, you know, Nork and the Iron Man are kind of, they are, they are the great love, the great loves of my life. <laughs> mm. It reminds me of the book, Miss Rumpius, and it's a children's book. Um, well, I love the name, by the way, Miss Rumpius. Oh, it's, it's such a good, I think. <laughs> so I, delightful to say. She's called the Lupine Lady. and. Um, she goes and travels and then she returns home. Um, and you know, that idea that you kind of, you do have to leave what you love and, and see other things, Mm. but then you also get to return and that that's important. Uh, Carla, would you like to read your poem Ironbound? Yes, I was just gonna uh, suggest that you uh, request a poem because I was looking at a few and I'm not sure where to go from here, but I I would love to read that. Thank you, Han. Absolutely. I was also thinking of saying. (laughs) Oh, yes. I feel like Ironbound is better to read out loud than Passaic because again I think Passaic is one of those poems that I really want folks to like experience visually I think Ironbound translates a little bit better to being read out loud um so I'll go I'll go with that one thank you that's great that's a great choice (laughs) um Ironbound Ferreira from the Latin root for iron if by my name I mean my fate then it is true that I am baptized 
like the city, bound by iron. Bound by iron tracks and brick city, I grew up with planes overhead and train whistles in the distance. Leaving to return is a rhyme we learn as immigrants. And in the city, we sing saudade as thin as the green plastic bags that catch on the branches of small emerging trees. Roots digging into this earth that is, after all, mostly iron at its core. We love these streets so much, we wash them with water and with bleach on Sunday mornings before church. In Portuguese, I love you means let me clean this for you. And we show it with chapped hands and old rags. Iron is a common element of uncommon traits. We find it in our blood and in our oceans. This city has learned to rust and rain and yet to resist. Wandering, I know the legend and have memorized it like the prayers from catechism, like the past perfect tense from pork chop school. I leave, I return, I forget, I remember. I go nowhere, but where I am, iron bound. Beautiful, thank you. Thank you for choosing that one. <laughs> it's, it was perfect. I mean, I feel like our conversation, I could have just been stopping and be like, please read this poem, please read this. <laughs> um, and the way- I feel like the poem says, oh, I'm so sorry, you were gonna no, no, say. No, 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 please. Um, I, I so feel like the, now that I've read it, I was just like, you know, I sh should have just stopped myself from speaking and just read the poem because I feel like everything I was trying to articulate kind of bumblingly in prose and being very inarticulate, I feel like the, the poem itself says exactly what I was trying to say much more succinctly. <laughs> oh, but you know, I think I love, I love that conversations can wander all over the place oh. and, you know, <laughs> scoop up so many different things. And I'm so happy we talked just even a moment about um, how you're traveling and, and returning home, like how that affects your work. Mm. Because I think these questions are, they're about how we write our work, but they're also, mm. you know, about how poets live their lives. And that can be very helpful for a listener to hear. Um, I think about how, when I was coming back, to writing poetry after having two children and just feeling like I was a different person. I didn't know how to do anything mm. anymore. How, how did I situate myself? How did I give myself permission? And I was constantly looking for, for stories where people would say where, you know, when and where they wrote, how they were able to write, mm. how they dealt with being a parent, how they dealt with coming back to writing after having taken a long break um, and just yes. hearing other people's stories that are similar to our own can be incredibly helpful in terms of just practically figuring out how your writing mm. process can fit into your real life. Um, and I know, you know, that you as a teacher, I would love to hear um, how your writing fits into your life in that way, because one of one of the things I really want to do on this podcast is to feature um, teachers, because especially um, primary and secondary teachers who I feel like sometimes mm. are um, kind of left out of some of the conversations that happen at universities in with poetry, mm. which can be um, tragic, I think. Oh, absolutely. Um, that's such an incredibly thoughtful question. I feel like when you were talking about um, relearning how to write poetry after after a while away after having had children um there were uh several years in my 20s where my mental health was really poor and i was just not writing yeah. um so i feel like i took um <laughs> i hesitate to call it a hiatus because that sounds like it was like a choice <laughs> oh, yes. um it was it was very much um 
not not within my own choosing, but I, I was definitely far away from poems. And I feel like, uh, you know, when I was getting my master's in education and that was the same year I was doing my student teaching um, and my first year of teaching, um, I, I really struggled uh, to make time as, as my mental health was getting better. Um, I still was struggling to make time because of just how overwhelming it is uh, to be a high school teacher. Um, just all of the different hats that you're wearing, the amount of work that you're doing on a daily and a weekly basis. It was, it was really hard, but I think honestly, what, what directed me back was, was teaching poetry. <laughs> um, yes. I, uh, at the high school that I worked at, um, I felt like our freshman year curriculum um, was incredibly white um, and white-centered. Um, I mean, the summer reading novel that we that we used to do was Ender's Game, which is another wow. <laughs> white, white boy yes. hero's journey. <laughs> Um, wow. And we also taught the Odyssey, another white boy hero's journey. <laughs> um, and I remember, you know, speaking to one of my colleagues about it and saying, you know, our curriculum is, is just, I, I was at that, at this point, I had only been teaching at the school for about a, a year. And I was like, I, I'm very concerned that our curriculum is very white centered. And she was like, well, no, it's, it's very diverse. <laughs> like how are you defining that term she's like well you know we have Enrique's journey um there are so many things that Mm. I I mean I I had to like take a deep calming breath (laughs) it's like well we have Enrique's journey which is about you know one uh Honduran immigrants journey to the United States but you know the problem with that is that it's making one person carry the responsibility of representing what is in fact an incredibly diverse (laughs) um you know uh realm of experiences there's no one immigrant experience in the united states Mm -hmm. and i feel like it's deeply harmful actually that we just have this one token immigrant novel uh, not novel non-fiction book (laughs) um and I, because of that, because I saw that there was, um, despite my pushback, it was it was going to require a lot more heavy lifting, which thankfully I did. At the year that I left, um, they finally made the summer reading, uh, they finally changed the summer reading so that Ender's Game was just one of the options. And there were finally authors of color as, uh, as one of the summer reading options, as several of the summer reading options, which I was really pleased about definitely took too long to get there Mm. for me though I started thinking okay well um I can keep screaming against this (laughs) which granted Mm -hmm. I did um but another thing that I did was like I am gonna do a poetry unit and y'all are not gonna tell me who I can teach (laughs) um and the poetry unit was um you know, uh, the way that I structured it was really focusing first and foremost on authors of color, disabled writers, uh, women and non-binary authors. Um, And it was in creating that course and teaching that course and having it develop. um, That's when I started to fall in love with poetry again. Um, I was like, oh gosh, I really miss this. Yeah. Um, And it was, it was really a wonderful experience for me as a teacher for many of my students. Um, it was the first time that they were getting to see themselves represented in the literature that they were reading, which made me feel both deeply honored and grateful to be a part of that experience and also deeply disappointed um, in the education system as it is that for many of them it was the first time that they were seeing themselves and what they were reading yeah um for me in the background it was like oh gosh poetry i miss it (laughs) (laughs) um you know i need to start doing this again um and so i think it was really in developing curriculum for that unit um, that I started to fall in love with writing again. Um, I started reading, um, 
you know, more, one of my favorite, favorite books, um, and the first book that I ever read by a living poet, um, was, uh, Teeth by, uh, Anaceli Skirmai, mm. um, and so I returned to that book again, and, uh, which I had first read when I was in high school, um, and it was just, again, it kind of felt like a literary homecoming, um, it was like, wow, okay, this is the poetry that, that sustains me, that keeps me alive, um, and so that was slowly how I started um, to overcome that, I guess, years long writer's block. Um, and now I just, oh gosh, um, <laughs> you know, when I'm teaching during the school year, um, you know, pandemic times have been different because I was 100% remote and the, the lines between work and not work began to blur really unhealthily. Mm-hmm. Um, where work just kind of became the monster that absorbed everything. Mm. Um, but during the school year, um, when I was in person, it w- I would have like a prep period and I would just take like 10 or 15 minutes and try to write, write something, um, you know, just kind of chasing after the stolen moments, wherever they are to use it for writing. Um, yes. But yeah, that's, that's such a thoughtful question. And I, I feel like I, I want to think about it more myself and reflect on it because uh, now I'm going to be back in person. And so it's like, oh gosh, I hope I don't completely <laughs> lose <laughs> my writing practice. Yeah, no. And what you say about the kind of collapsing of like work and home spaces into each other um, has been such a real, a real thing. I know there's that like colloquial advice, which is like, don't have your desk Um, like don't put your work in your, um, recreational spaces or like in your sleep space. Like you shouldn't have your desk next to, you know, your bed or, um, that you should. Oh, that's so hard for so many of us. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's like impossible for a lot, you know, um, one of, one of my partner's, um, friends was talking about having so many different members on their remote team. Um, and like someone is, you know, someone's zooming in their like gorgeous backyard in Britain and someone is, you know, in a small, very small space with their closet literally behind them. Um, Mm. And it just, it kind of brings all the inequality of workspaces directly onto the camera. Um, So it is, it has been, it's been a hard, hard time for that. Um, But I do, do love that poetry can fit into the smallest space, which is mm-hmm. why it's just one of the most generous of all genres in my opinion, my totally biased opinion. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I a hundred percent, a hundred percent agree. Um, I, I'm grateful. I feel like I've never really dabbled in anything but poetry because I do not have the patience. <laughs> Um, I feel like, uh, you know, fiction or nonfiction mm-hmm. just would require time that realistically, for me, at least, I know other people can do it. But as the high school teacher, um, I just wouldn't be able to have the energy or time. Um, but what I love about, as you said, it's one of the most generous genres, like just being able to write. I often will write my first draft of a poem in less than 10 minutes. The, yeah. the revising can take months or years, Absolutely. but the, the first draft, you know, it's just, it's, it's incredibly rewarding to have that. It is. It is. And that's why I know you understand this as a teacher is when you assign a 10 minute prompt and just like the light bulbs that will go off when, when students can realize mm. what they can do in 10 minutes, um, even just starting a piece, even just oh, getting yes. a sentence down is so important. Um, mm. Hmm. Well, I wanted to bring up um, your poem in transit because um, thinking about the the myth making and um, what you're doing in your chat book, um, I love the line, I am lost in the fury of transit. Oh. And to me, it's like such a Dantean line. And maybe this is—I I love that. <laughs> I was like, maybe this is just I've my Dante loving brain. No, but I love that. I—I love—I love the Inferno. I love all those mm. travel narratives that Dante does because they really are, you know, travel narratives. So yes. that's a really cool way of looking at it. And and just the idea of transit as saying that you know, well, it easily is happening in the Eurydice and Orpheus mm. um, myth. It's 
happen, you know, it's happening in Dante. It's an absolutely essential part of living in a city. Mm, um, yeah. And so, so there's like, and I know like Fanny Howe has done a lot of work like this, right? Um, her last, oh gosh, I'm going to forget the title of her last, co- her last collection from Grey Wolf. Um, oh gosh, I'm it, also blanking. It's beautiful. And I wrote a review of it. <laughs> I love that book. Um, but this is what happens with brain sometimes. Um, of course. So I'm, I'm missing the title of Fanny Howe's book, but um, I can actually probably look that up while we're, we're speaking. Um, but it, she does so much with the idea of travel as both spiritual um, and physical. And um, I think that's something that's so strongly going on in your chat book. And, oh, it's Love and Die, of course. It's love and die. Oh, That's gorgeous. the name of her book. Um, and so again, like, right. It's, um, it's a, it's a spiritual journey with love mm. um, and it in the poet's physical life as well. And so she does some really cool things with that. And I, it, it makes me think that, Oh, like if, when, you know, that I would just love to see even more of this in your work. Um, so, you know, we're always kind of looking for ideas on how to expand projects, but um, that's something I think of for you that I would love, love to see. Um, oh, and absolutely. it's just, it's so, I mean, it's not that it's, it's of course all over, all over this chat book. And I think I, I know I said this to you before we started talking, but like, it's just such a powerhouse chat book. Like it's, it's almost, oh. I mean, it should be, people just need to read it so that they can be like, wow, I didn't realize you could do so much successfully and in a small space and that every poem can be this good and this strong and has such a clear, um, you know, vision and attention for what it's doing. Um, so I definitely encourage listeners to pick up your chapbook from Go City Press, um, as well as your Eat a Persimmon craft chap which I, is just beautifully, beautifully designed and um, has some incredible prompts in it. And I, again, I love the, what you did with um, the kind of theme of don't be nice, be kind. That's kind of woven throughout your prompts. It, it's wonderful. Oh, I'm so, I'm so glad that was that, that chapbook was just such a delight to write. And I, in, in terms of thinking about writing practice, that was done almost entirely in my classroom after school. Um, (laughs) I was thinking about how I wanted to do more creative writing with my students. And I thought to myself, I really should just for future reference have like a group of prompts that I really like um, that I can just, you know, whip out at any time um, and just have, you know, at the ready, even as like a quick write when they first come into class and just have that on the board. Um, some teachers will call it a do now. Um, that's always been like very uh, frightening language to me, a do now. <laughs> <laughs> um, I usually call it a quick write. Um, oh, yeah. But like when students first come in and they're getting settled into the classroom, God, I'm feeling super nostalgic talking about this because that hasn't happened for a while. I haven't seen students walk into my classroom since March 14th, uh, 20 or March 13th, I should say 2020 Friday, the 13th. Um, (laughs) but I, I just wanted, um, you know, I was thinking to myself one day after school, I really want a group of prompts that I could, I could use easily and I could share with other teachers. Um, and as I started writing them, I was like, this could, this could be a little, little chat book. <laughs> yeah. um, and I just started having so much fun, um, you know, thinking up new ideas um, and just kind of putting things together. I had also read uh, via Sundress, they had some free craft chaps and one of them was written by Chen Chen who wrote um, the chap, uh, you must use the word smoothie, which I love Mm. the title. (laughs) Um, And I had read through that and I was like, wow, this is like such an inventive uh, way of presenting prompts to a writer. Um, And so I I thought about it, I put it together. This was in December of 2019. And I just kind of held on to it 
like I, I did the formatting. I, I actually did design the cover this time using Canva. I showed it to one of my friends and he was like, wow, you've improved <laughs> from last time, haven't you? <laughs> like, yeah, a little, little bit. It's beautiful. <laughs> Much better than my... Um, oh my gosh. Yeah. I, I need to find uh hand. I think I will send you uh, the original cover of Ironbound Fathers so you can kind of gasp in horror and <laughs> also delight even more in its current cover. But um, yeah. And so I, I kind of had that on hand. And then <laughs> what I kept doing was I kept missing deadlines for all of the, um, you know, prose chapbook uh, submissions for different presses oh. um, just continuously I feel like I was on such uh, you know pandemic brain during that time um, like so many of us I was feeling really devastated and angry and confused throughout you know a lot of 2020 hmm. um, and once we reached the end of the year it was around December I was like you know I kept missing these deadlines, but like, what is really the point of this book? Um, I just want it to be uh, accessible. I want as many people who uh, would find it helpful to be able to read it. Um, I don't necessarily need to do this with the press. Hmm. Um, so I just created it as a PDF and I uploaded it onto my website. Um, and yeah, it ended up having like a pretty positive response from, uh, you know, uh, writers and even fellow teachers, um, which that really, um, that really meant a lot to me. I think when I found out that other teachers were using it in their classrooms like that, that for me meant the world because that was really the goal. It's like, okay, I just want this to be um, a super user-friendly way of like, um, you know, incorporating poetry into the classroom. And I think for me, I kind of, I, I knew that I had done what I had set out to do when um, <laughs> I hadn't actually told any of my work colleagues about it. And then one morning, uh, soon after I had published it, my group chat um, of colleagues uh, at the school that I work at, they were all talking about the chapbook, including the history teacher who doesn't even really super like writing or reading poetry. And she was just like, this makes me want to write a poem. And I was like, Aww. oh my God, that's exactly what I wanted. <laughs> um, that's so, wonderful. <laughs> that's, that's the whole uh, creation backstory. <laughs> no, that's so good to hear. I mean, it's a real labor of love um, and it's designed again, like beautifully. Um, and the fact that you did it yourself, I think it's just, it's perfect. <laughs> I had a lot of fun on Canva, that's for sure. <laughs> it's adding in little drawings. Yes, it looks so good, Carla. It really does. Oh. I I love all the different tools that are available now. Um, Canva is such a good one. Um, there are just so many things that, that, you know, when you're thinking about accessibility, when you think of, mm. of a lot of people who are self-taught or are, you know, learning things on their own. Um, whether it's podcasting, haha, or something else, <laughs> there's a lot of resources. Like if you can get to a computer, you can get to an internet connection. Mm. There really is a lot. Um, or your phone or, um, oh, yes. Well, wow. Well, this has been incredible. Um, I would love it if you wanted to close us out with a poem. Absolutely. I, I'm wondering actually if you have another choice from the chat because I do feel like they're all my children and mm. <laughs> um, I'm actually super curious for me even as a writer um, like what what is grabbing a reader's attention and for you especially as a poet who I admire so much um, I'd, I'd love to know like what might your choice be? I'm sorry. That feels like a way of just putting it no, on you. <laughs> are you kidding? I get to choose. That's wonderful. Um, <laughs> um, I would love it if you closed with to the cherry blossom trees at Branch Brook. Oh, yes. Um, so before I read it, a little known fact about Newark um, is that we have, I believe, the most cherry blossom trees in the country second only to Washington, D.C. Wow. Um, which, again, is one of those things that it's, it's part, it's part of, you know, what the city is. And yet, mm. I feel like it does not, it does not get nearly enough, um, nearly enough recognition. To the cherry blossom trees at Branch Brook, 
You are alone at morning and it breaks you to grow into what we have expected. No stranger walks these paths late at night. Perhaps even the ghost bride has taken to haunting other grounds. Weary pedestrians arrive to see how it comes to you, not like an unwilling lover, but in the way that only gentle lovers and spring can come. To them, you, tender trees, speak sleeping adolescence. You sing evening songs to them. Your breathing, shallow as the tall stone cathedral watches you while cars drive, letting the radio voice touch the tips of your branches without asking. Men bring their goods to you, negotiate in muffled language, transacting into your roots. Your branches sway with summer, once bent with snow. Now is the new time. Each year you let the children scatter petals forgetfully. The petals swept at the end of April. Your branches will hold nothing but memory. Thank you so much for that poem, Carla. Thank you, Han. I that line. Um, Weary pedestrians arrive to see how it comes to you, not like an unwilling lover, but in the way that only gentle mm. lovers and spring can come. Oh my goodness, that line is just Aww. absolutely beautiful. And um, I just thought it was gorgeous and the whole poem. And it, I love that it ends with cleaning too, that you have mm. the petals swept. <laughs> I I feel like, wow, you know, I hadn't even noticed that there's a cleaning metaphor kind of in there. I feel like my, my mom and my grandma would be very proud of my <laughs> upholding my Portuguese roots. <laughs> yes. um, no, but it's, um, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's actually very interesting to kind of think about in relation to that to the other poem, The Ironbound, about cleaning the streets, which is also a real thing that people would do, including my mom, who would get up before church on Sundays and they would wash the streets with a with bleach and with water to make the sidewalk clean. Um, and so it's interesting to kind of see that I kind of sneaked in here too. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, no, that's that's incredible. I th- love that. Um, I think it's something country people and rural people, which I, you know, those are my, my people mm-hmm. don't think about a lot. And when I went to um, St. Petersburg in college and, you know, to see the women sweeping the streets in the mm. morning, um, is like a really beautiful labor to see. Um, it's, it's pretty incredible, but taking, taking care of the body politic, mm. right. And taking care of the places people's feet walk on. Um, yeah, that's love too. It's something I I definitely did not appreciate enough as a child, but now again, looking back at it, it was just like, what a beautiful way of caring for common spaces Mm. Um, and just kind of acknowledging, you know, it wasn't just that we're cleaning the sidewalk for us. It's that this is, this is our city. We love it. We want it to be, to look beautiful for each other. Um, You know, it's such a, it's it's an incredibly tender act. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I love, I love Branchbrook Park. I actually got to see it, um, with the cherry blossoms for the very first time since high school, uh, this past spring, um, which is really extraordinary to go back there mm. and to see all the trees and blossom. And, um, yeah, I feel like as, you know, again, as a, as a kid growing up in Newark, it's like, it's very easy to identify with those trees to just see, you know, to see them blooming in the city is like, well, that's, that's what I want to do. You know, I want to grow up in that same way. I'd like to be 
strong and and beautiful um and the beauty coming from from again kindness you'd mentioned <laughs> i want to bring us back to this idea of, of kindness versus niceness um which you had mentioned and i feel like i didn't fully address um just this you know um i think when we think about kindness and the the kindness that i hope that these poems are articulating is just this the sense of mm our responsibility to each other. Um, I think about the Gwendolyn Brooks uh, poem, Paul Robeson, where she says, mm -hmm. we are each other's harvest. We are each other's magnitude and bond. Um, and that to me, that feels like, you know, that kindness is the, is the promise we make when we, when we have public parks, uh, yeah. when we have libraries, when we have things that we share with one another, when we care for each other, um, as something greater than each one of us is independently as as community um really and i think that what is uh something that i hope that these poems uh speak out against <laughs> mm -hmm. is niceness at any cost you know so being um being polite in the face of injustice uh being quiet when sometimes even if even if you're speaking in a whisper, you should be speaking. Um, saying the thing that is true, um, even if it is not popular, um, you know. So, mm. yeah, with these with these trees, you know, I often think again, you know, like so much of of Newark, um, Branchbrook Park. If you go there at certain parts of at night, um, which I think I kind of uh, allude to in the poem, it's considered kind of a dangerous place. You wouldn't, you know. You wouldn't go there alone necessarily, but what does it mean for that danger and that beauty to coexist? You know, both can be true. Um, and there's, um, I don't know, there's something worth defending and celebrating within that. Yes, yes, no, that's, and I think that's a wonderful note to close on and a perfect time to say thank you for being here. Oh, thank um, you, Han, so much. This is amazing. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad. I'm so glad this worked out before you get very busy teaching. <laughs> um, and I hope this this brings even more people to your beautiful work. Um, so thank you, listeners, for listening to Of Poetry Podcast, episode four, with the poet Carla Sofia Vivira. To read more of Carla's work, visit https colon slash slash www.carlasofiaferreira.com. To subscribe and rate of Poetry Podcast, visit Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast, or visit ofpoetrypodcast.wordpress.com, where we link to poems Carla read today, as well as her chat book with Ghost City Press. So do please pick yourself up a copy of that and Carla's craft chap, Eda Persimmon. And thank you for listening. <laughs>